That was wonderful, wasn't it? Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 9 through 18 today, but I'll be reading from verse 1 to kind of do a review of the last time I preached. This is the Word of God. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep's gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The last time I preached, we covered verses 1 through 8 of this chapter. And we saw how this man, who was paralyzed for 38 years, was miraculously healed by Jesus. And we also saw that he was healed by grace and grace alone. He did nothing to receive what he did. In fact, all that he brought to the table that day, if you remember, was hopelessness, despair, and bitterness. And this made the grace of this healing even more glorifying to God because this man did absolutely nothing. And Jesus did absolutely everything for him. You know what? Jesus did the same thing for us when we were spiritually blind, lame, and paralyzed, as that song said, that Amy sung. Now, if you were watching the movie Jaws at this point, 
you would start hearing the ominous music. Dun, right? Dun, 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 dun. And you'd start wondering, when is the jaw, I mean, when is the fin going to appear in the water, right? Well, it appears in verse 9. Notice what it says. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. This is the turning point in the Gospel of John. Satan attacks the ministry of Jesus Christ using the legalism of the Jews as his weapon of choice. This attack begins in verse 9 and ends, it really doesn't end, but it ends in the book of John at the crucifixion of Christ. This is no accident that Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. He chose to do it on the Sabbath. He does this intentionally to confront the hypocrisy and the legalism of the Jews. It's unbelievable how blind these people were. I mean, you look at verses 10 through 13, they're ignoring the fact they knew that this man had been lame for 38 years. And they ignore the fact that this man is walking around now. And they focus on their laws. They miss the glory of God in order, listen to this, they miss the glory of God in order to glorify themselves. Now you might think, how did they do that? By their own version of God's laws. They wanted to be highly esteemed. They wanted to be respected. They wanted the people of God to follow them. They wanted no competition. And so this battle starts in verse 9 when Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. Look at, look at uh, John 5.44, and it shows their motive. Jesus even says it in the context. He says this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and that you do not seek glory that is from the one and only God? You know, when you're seeking your own glory, you miss the glory of God all around you. And I think many times, as Christians, we see the glory of God everywhere. Unbelievers don't. They don't. In fact, they ignore it. And notice the ones who bring up this rule about carrying pallets don't say anything about this man being healed. And where did they get this rule from about not carrying pallets? Is, is this a law in the Bible? Listen to what one author says about this. The difficulty lay in the fact that the leaders of Israel had added man's regulation to God's law. And this had reduced the observance of the Sabbath to the worst form of legalism. For instance, the law said that the man was not to travel on the Sabbath day. It was Exodus 16.29. But what is traveling, said the scribes, what constitutes a journey? In answering this question, they developed the concept of a Sabbath day's journey, which was roughly a thousand yards. I love that, roughly a thousand yards. Not exactly a thousand yards, roughly a thousand yards. How do, you, how do you figure that? So a man could walk that far on the Sabbath, but to walk more than that roughly 
was a sin. If, however, a rope was tied across the end of the street, then the whole street technically could become one house, and a man could walk a thousand yards beyond the rope. Or if he deposited enough food for a meal any given place on a Friday night, on the next day, he could walk to it, eat the meal, and then walk a thousand yards more. And if he was clever enough, I suppose, a determined man could walk halfway across Palestine on the Sabbath. Listen to this. This is amazing. Or take the matter of carrying a burden, what we're talking about here. The text in Jeremiah prohibits this. But what is a burden? Is it a handkerchief? Is a handkerchief a burden? Well, the answer was yes, if it was carried on the Sabbath. But no, if it was worn as an article of clothing. So obviously, the way to get a handkerchief out of the upstairs drawer to the downstairs drawer on the Sabbath was to take it and put it on, wear it downstairs, and then take it off and put it into the drawer. Can you imagine going through all of this to keep all of these laws? Can you imagine the burden that was on the people of God because of these laws? Finally, listen to this. The same logic also worked in this way. Take a man who was walking on the Sabbath. He spits. Is that work? It depends on where the saliva falls. If it goes into the dirt and makes a slight furrow, then it's plowing and it's work. But if it hits a rock, no work is done. So under this system, being religious on a Saturday more or less depended on which direction you spit. Can you believe that? You know, and b- before we go pointing our finger at the Jews for all their legalism, you know, many times we've got to remember there's three po- fingers pointing back to us, the church, right? Because we have a lot of man-made rules too, don't we? Um, so put yourself in this healed man's position, He had been unable to walk for 38 years, and then all of a sudden, he's healed. He's walking. He's jumping. I'm sure he's probably laughing or crying. If his family was there, they were like, yes, right? They were probably so excited. And then this group throws a wet rag on this man's joy. They say that he's breaking the rules, that he's doing something wrong that he's not, and they weren't thinking about this man's joy. They weren't thinking about his 38 years of struggle. They were just thinking about their own glory and their own rules. And that this healed man had the audacity, the audacity to break their rules. Now here's here's another scary thing that's going on here. This man had been healed, the last time we looked at this, he had been healed physically, but he was not yet healed spiritually. Thus, he was still held captive to his fears. He was still held captive to man's legislation. Well, well, how do we know that? Look at verse 11 again. And it says, But he asked them, 
He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. How do we know that he was held captive to his fears? Because in this verse, he throws Jesus under the bus. Okay? He doesn't even know it's Jesus yet. Whoever healed him, he throws under the bus. Because he says, this man told me to pick up my pallet and walk. Why, why was this man so fearful of the Jews? Why was he so fearful? Because they had the power to ostracize this man. They had the power, as we'll see later on, they had the power to throw him out of the temple. They had the power, they were holding his salvation over his head. He knew that he was guilty of breaking their, their law. And so he was trying to justify his actions by blaming another, and that's been going on ever since Genesis 3. We remember that. This man's joy was diminished because of his fear of what men think of him. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been afraid of what people think of you? Should a Christian ever fear what people think of them? Well, turn with me to Colossians 2, and we'll, we'll get an answer for that, especially when you're dealing with man-made laws. Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. Turn there with me. Keep your finger in John 5. It says this, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things are which a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, for whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the use, in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are no value against fleshly indulgence. You see, the Colossians were being told by implication that Christ was not enough for salvation that they needed something more. They needed to eat certain foods or they didn't need to drink certain drinks. They needed to keep the Sabbath day or they needed to keep certain festivals. They needed Christ plus something else in order to be saved. And the Apostle Paul soundly rejects all of these human legislations that are being added to the completed work of Christ. The Apostle tells us that we should not allow anyone to judge us on issues of conscience. The only one who can bind the conscience is God speaking to us through his word. 
the healed man was living in fear of man-made laws. In fact, he may have been thinking that they were God's laws, like many times we do. One writer said this, In principle, most of us would readily agree that the rules that humans make up do not make us acceptable to God. However, our desire to please God, combined with a human bent to prove our acceptance by comparison with others and control of others, makes us factories of human legislation. Did you hear that? We're factories of human legislation. For example, a pastor recently told of a controversy in his church, and you won't believe this, over whether people should use the artificial sweetener in the blue or the pink packet. Okay? Controversy in the church over that. And the controversy ended quickly when the pastor said, we sing about this in one of the hymns. And the lyrics go like this. I heard Jesus whisper, sweet and low. That's bad, isn't it? But that funny story was funny to me. It misses the seriousness of legalism. Because legalism can destroy a ministry. Legalism can destroy a church. Um, And one writer said this about legalism that we face today. Some of the battles are current, often based by strongly held preferences that are difficult to prove absolutely from the scriptures. The length and pattern of consider what divides us so deeply and readily the length and pattern of personal devotion, schooling choices, political choices, racial reconciliation measures, child discipline philosophies, economic theories, and methods of evangelism. All of these, all of these have the potential of creating division in the church. And and when I look at this list, I, I look at one of these that affected our family, the length and pattern of personal devotion. Years ago, many years ago, um, my wife was at a Bible study, and the teacher got up and taught that she got up at four in the morning to have her quiet time every morning. And what was implied by that, my wife took, is holy people get up at four. Less holy people get up later. And what that teaches, it's a subtle teaching uh, that teaches a two-tiered Christianity of the haves and the have-nots. Those that get up at four are holier than those that get up at six. And you can see how that can create division in the church. And Colossians here, Paul is absolutely throwing all of that out. He's saying man-made laws are thrown out. He says we must love one another, you know, and love one another even in the differences and not hold our views over other people. Listen to what Jesus said about man-made laws in Mark chapter 7, verse 5 through 8. He, the Pharisees were asking him a question. They said, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat their bread with impure hands. You know, basically, they had made a rule about 
washing your hands. And uh, Jesus, Jesus and the disciples weren't doing it. And so they were upset. And what was Jesus' response to this? Well, he says this, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrine the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. Jesus blasted the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And he does the same in Matthew 23. And that leads us to the second point, which is this man is healed again. Look at verses 14 and 15 of John 5. Go back to John 5. Look at verses 14 and 15. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So after being healed, this man goes to the temple, and it's most likely he went to present himself to the priest because he was healed. Now notice that Jesus, it says he found him. He finds this man, which means that Jesus had to go in search of him. This man was healed physically, but he was not yet healed spiritually. He still was lost. He still was an enemy of God. Ephesians 2, 1 says he was spiritually dead. Luke 15 says he was a lost sheep that needed to be found. And the amazing thing about Christianity, and it should amaze us all, is that it's the only religion in the world where God comes seeking for us instead of us seeking for God. This man would have continued on in his sin unless Jesus would have found him. He would have ended up in hell unless Jesus would have called him. This man would have continued to live a life of fear, keeping human legislation. So what is Jesus doing in verse 14? Let's look at that again. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. He's, he's telling this man that he needs to repent. He needs to turn from his sin. But many read this verse and, and think that what it's teaching is the reason why the man was lame in the first place was because of his sin. And if he continued in sin, he would get sick again. Many read that verse and get that out of that. That's not what Jesus is doing here. The nothing worse would happen is a warning of hell if he didn't repent, if he didn't turn from his sin. And this was a loving warning from Jesus. But our modern culture doesn't believe in warnings. In fact, our modern culture doesn't believe in a future judgment or hell. In fact, our culture would say that tolerance is the greatest virtue and to warn somebody about hell is being judgmental. But was Jesus being judgmental here? Was he being unloving towards this man? 
I, I, I say no way. Because of his love for this man, Jesus was willing to face this man's rejection and scorn because he could have rejected him, couldn't he have? But most of all, Jesus was willing to face the wrath of his father for this man's sin. Greater love had no man than he's willing to lay down a life for a friend. And that's what we do every time we give the gospel. We're willing to love people unconditionally. We're willing to face rejection and scorn every time we give the gospel like Jesus is doing here. So how does this man respond? How does he respond to this warning? Well, some would suggest that this man doesn't come to faith. Some would say that, in fact, that next to Judas, this is one of the greatest betrayals in the Bible. Here Jesus heals this man, and what they're saying is, this man rejects Jesus and then turns him in. Turns him into the Jews, and then they start persecuting Jesus. But look at verse 15 again. Look down at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. What did he say before about the man who healed him? He said, the man who healed me before, right, in verse 11, he said, the man who healed me told me to pick up my pallet and walk, right? He was blaming Jesus. But here, does he say the same thing? The man who healed me was Jesus, and he's the one who told me to pick up my pallet and walk. He didn't say that, did he? He was no longer trying to justify what he did. He was no longer trying to blame shift. He is instead professing his faith in Christ, although it's a weak profession. He's saying that Jesus is the one who healed him. He's saying that Jesus is the one who made him well. This man was a brand new believer. Now notice what he didn't say. I want you to think about this. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say Jesus is Lord. He didn't say Jesus is the creator of the universe like John chapter 1 says, right? He didn't say Jesus healed me both physically and spiritually. He doesn't say that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and he can tell me what to do any time he wants. You guys aren't Lord he's Lord. Didn't do that either, did he? He didn't say, I've been a paraplegic for 38 years. Who could only heal me but God? No. All he said simply was, Jesus is the one who made me well. It was a simple statement of faith. Now compare this simple statement of faith to the blind man that was healed on the Sabbath in John chapter 9. Turn there with me. When this blind man gets healed, he begins to debate the Pharisees in a wonderful way. There, there is no doubt that this man is saved because of the boldness 
of his faith. He's like the Apostle Paul after Paul got saved. But look at the second part. I mean, this is in two sections. It's, It's pretty long, so I divided it in two. And the second part of his um, debate with the Pharisees, he says this in verse 24 through 34. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're talking about Jesus. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you do not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciple too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anybody opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and you are teaching us? So they put him out. So here we see this healed man powerfully debates the Pharisees, and he's thrown out of the temple. He's thrown out of worship because of his stand for Christ. And also, I believe, because he won the debate. He, he made the Pharisees look pretty foolish. His faith is revealed in, by his love for Christ, by his obedience to Christ. And although his debating skills are strong, it does not make him more beloved by God than the healed paralytic in chapter 5. But you know, many times, don't you, we do this, we compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to others. We might compare ourselves to, you know, R.C. Sproul when he was living or Sinclair Ferguson or, or maybe somebody in the church that you see does a ton of ministry and you wonder, man, how does God look at me compared to that person? How does, how does God see me? But both the healed paralytic and the blind man were saved by grace through faith. They both stand equal at the foot of the cross. And it's not the power of their profession, but it's the power of the one who possesses them that makes them righteous. Listen to this. Grace is the unmerited favor and pleasure and presence of God for both of these men. Not based on what they had done or what they would do, but only based on what Christ had done for them. They both, after being healed and saved, could live their lives loving God and loving man out of thankfulness to Christ. And we can do 
the same. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your wonderful grace that has saved us, that has paid the price for our sins. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your perfect righteousness that was put to our account. Father, help us to live for your glory and your glory alone. Help us to abide in your word. Help us to obey your word out of love for you. And Father, help us to realize that you have lived out the law perfectly for us. We praise you for that, Lord. And Lord, help us to glorify you in the way we live. And help us not to hold rules over other people. Father, we thank you for this time together, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.